Good morning. Good morning to everyone online. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you're listening to us on Facebook this morning, just drop a little note, say hello, so we know who's listening. And just uh, to add what Paul said, um, there are agape boxes in the back, but also if you go online to our website, calvarychapel.org, there is a place you can give online. There's also a PayPal option if you want to do that. Um, I don't normally talk about tithing or giving. That says the Lord leads, but it does help us um, get the word out and keep, and keep getting the word out. So if the Lord leads you to give, it would be a blessing if you want to go online and do that. Today we are in the book of Revelation chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. We're not going to get past verse 1 today, so there won't be much reading there. But uh, if you need a Bible, slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. Listen, I know, because I'm one of them, everyone's upset over the, what's happened in our country in the last few days. And all I'm going to say this morning is that it is not over yet. Keep praying. Keep praying. Um, this will more than likely wind up in the Supreme Court. And when it does, whatever the outcome is, I'm sure that it's not going to sit well with either side. Um, so one side or the other is going to be disappointed in this, there's no doubt. But just keep our country in prayer because what is going to happen um, as a result of this one way or the other is, is not going to be good for our country. And a lot of people are going to be hurt. A lot of relationships are going to be hurt. Um, so just keep praying. And um, the Lord will prevail. Nations, governments, they can plot all they want. But the Lord's will is going to be done in the end. Amen? Amen. All right. So Revelation chapter 13. Today we're going to look at the Antichrist. Not because he deserves our time and attention. Because, to be honest with you, I just as soon not talk about him. But he is a huge part of the tribulation, and so we must talk about him. And we know we will not see him. But there are people who are going to listen to this message this morning who, if they're not right with Jesus Christ, if they don't know him as Lord and Savior, they will see him. And so I want you to have a little bit of an idea of who you're going to be governed by at that point. So it wasn't that long ago not in my lifetime anyway, where it was difficult to see how this could all come about, how the world could be governed by one world leader, especially for Americans. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? But as ignorant as I was, and I'm sure many of you were ignorant at one time as well, the world, as we found out, has been clamoring for a very long time for a new world order, which requires a one world leader. Even our leaders in government have been talking about a new world order and a one world leader. I'm going to read you some quotes from some famous people that you're going to, you're going to remember, be familiar with their names. Albert Einstein said, the only real step toward world, world government is world government itself. David Rockefeller, we are on the verge of global transformation. And here's the part you really need to listen closely to. All we need is the right major crisis. Boy, do they have that, don't they? And the nations will accept the new world order. Robert Kennedy said, all of us will ultimately be judged on our effort that we've contributed to building a new world order. George Bush, if we do not follow the dictates of our inner moral compass, I don't know what compass he's following, and stand up for human life, then this lawlessness will threaten the peace and democracy of the emerging new world order we now see. This long dreamed of vision we've all worked toward for so long. So I could go on and on and on with these quotes because there's dozens and dozens of them. But just suffice it to say that there's plenty of evidence that the leaders, even in this country, but the leaders around the world have been calling for a one-world government and a one-world leader for a very long time. And the Bible tells us that one day, that world leader 
who we know is the Antichrist, will come to power. And he will try and bring into subjection to himself the nations of the world. Henry Spack was a former Belgian prime minister and one of the principal architects of the European Union that we know today, said this, What we want is a man of sufficient stature to hold the alliances of all people and to lift us out of the economic morass in which we are sinking. Send us such a man, and be he God or devil, we will receive him. Be he God or devil. Well, he will be the devil who looks at himself, considers himself to be a god. And we know him, of course, as the Antichrist. Now, that name Antichrist can have two meanings to it. It can mean either in place of Christ or opposed to or against Christ. And, and the Antichrist will exhibit both of those characteristics. And the world, including the Jewish people, are going to see him as a savior of the world. Not so much in the sense that they look at him as Messiah, but he will save the world politically and economically. And isn't that what the world's looking for today? Someone to come in and save us politically and economically? This Antichrist will be all things to all people, and the world are going to see him as a savior. Now, we know that the, co the country, the nation that we live in, at one time was a God-fearing nation. One of the things that President Barack Obama said that I happen, one of them, that I happen to agree with, is that we are no longer a Christian nation. This God, once God-fearing nation is today gripped by evil, isn't it? Not against its will either, because there are people and politicians who have gladly embraced evil. You know, to watch women march and fight for the right to terminate their own babies is just evil. I'm sorry, but it's just evil. To watch criminals, felons be let out of jail and peaceful protesters be put in jail is evil. To watch those who raped, exploited, harmed mentally and physically our children through pedophilia and sex trafficking seemingly get away with this is just pure evil. To watch governors and politicians sit back and watch businesses that have taken generations to build, destroyed and do nothing about it is evil. To watch neighborhoods and vibrant, vibrant businesses burned and defaced while politicians look on with approval is evil. And so what we're witnessing in this country, and around the world, by the way, is what the prophet Isaiah spoke of. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Isaiah 5.20. Do you understand now that this nation, this world, is being prepared for the Antichrist? The stage is being set. All the right people are being put into place. And listen, it seems like evil and darkness is growing, doesn't it? Seems like it's spreading. But that doesn't take away the sovereignty of God. God is still sovereign in the midst of all of this. And he's allowing the enemy, he's allowing the enemy to work in the darkness because God's using the enemy, as he's done in the past, to bring about what we've all been praying for for years, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus to come and rule and reign as, as our Lord. And listen, Jesus warned us about this time, the time that we live in. He said, we must carry out the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. John chapter 9, verse 4. The darkness is closing in. It seems like it, doesn't it? And the day is fast approaching when we, we, we may not be able to legally share the gospel message or even do what we're doing right now, have a Bible study. So we need to work while it's still day. We need to work because the darkness, when it comes, we will no longer be able to work the way we've been working. And so it's not so difficult now, as we look around us and we see the evil that's all around us, it's not so difficult to see how this can all come about, to see how an antichrist, one world leader, can come into power and how he can spread that evil even further. It's not that difficult to see. 
We, listen, we're on the precipice of the tribulation. We really are. As we sit here this morning, we see the shadows of the things that will come. And if we're seeing those shadows now, how close is the real thing? So let's dig into our study this morning, entitled The Beast from the Sea. And as I said, we're just going to cover verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and his horns ten crowns, and on his heads blasphemous names. Or a blasphemous name, rather, not plural. So John sees, first of all, the dragon standing on the shore. Who does the dragon represent? Satan. And so we know that from chapter 12, right? We just studied that last week. But then he sees a beast coming up out of the sea. And we're going to discover as we go forward, the beast is the Antichrist. And we learn in Revelation 17, 15, because we're going to use scripture to interpret scripture, that the waters that he comes up out of is not the Mediterranean Sea. It is, in fact, and I'm going to read right from Revelation 17, 15, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So the water that John sees the beast coming up out of is, means that he's coming up out of the nations, out of the people of the earth. And he's going to rise to power from among the nations. What nations? Well, to figure that out, we're going to go way back, way back to the beginning, post-flood. Because all of this began, and I've been talking about this for a long time, all of this began at the Tower of Babel. Now you've heard me say this very often, haven't you? probably ad nauseum, probably sick of listening to me about it. But I hope to illustrate this for you today, just how deep-rooted the evil that we're going to see come to fruition soon, I think, how deep this evil truly is. God told Noah and his sons to what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? And so we find in Genesis 10 that Ham, Noah's son, had a son named Cush. And Cush, in turn, had a son named Nimrod. By chapter 11, we see that Nimrod leads a group of people into the land of Shinar to establish his own kingdom. And we see that in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. And so I'm going to read Genesis 11, 3, 4, what happens once they arrive in the land of Shinar. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So they obviously rebelled against the command of God to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. But the Jewish historian Josephus suggests that there may be more to that rebellion. I'm going to read you from um, the book of Antiquities, chapter 4. Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and a man of great strength. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as it was though his means that they were happy. In other words, what he's saying is don't ascribe our happiness to God because it's not God who's making us happy. And so he said, if you believe but do believe that it's our own courage which procured our happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from their fear of God, but to bring them into a constant dependence on his own power, speaking of Nimrod. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. Now the multitude were very ready to follow the determination of Nimrod and to esteem a place of cowardice to submit to God. And they built a tower, neither sparing any pains nor being in any degree negligent about the work. So now according to Josephus, the reason they built this tower was because they were upset at God for flooding the earth. And it's very interesting to note who they identify themselves with, who their forefathers are. They identify themselves with those who perished in the flood, the wicked. 
Not Noah and the remnant that God saved from the flood, but those who perished in the flood who were wicked. That's who they identify with. And so that shows you just where their hearts are. They are in complete rebellion against God as they build this tower. And so they build a tower so that if God ever floods the earth again, the waters wouldn't reach them. They'd be able to rise up above the flood. And so they cover the tower with a substance that's impervious to water, tar. We use the same petroleum product to coat our roads. In, in Pennsylvania, it seems like it's an ongoing thing, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we also use it on our roofs because it repels water. And so that's what they put all around this tower so it would be impervious to water. Now, whether you believe the account of Josephus or not, it's clear from the account in Genesis 11 that this tower was built in rebellion to God. Amen? So why is this the beginning? What connection does this have to the Antichrist? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. The land of Shinar, where the tab Tower of Babel was built, became what? Any of you history scholars know? Later on in the centuries, what, what was it? Babylon. Absolutely, became Babylon. That's where Babylon was located. And we know this from the prophet Daniel who said, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. So the reason that this area of earth is our focal point this morning is because it very may, well may be also the same area where the Garden of Eden was, where the original rebellion against God happened. Because many believe that this area of Mesopotamia, where the Fertile Crescent, is right around where the Garden of Eden would have been. And if that's true, then this area, the same area around Babylon, has a deep-rooted history in rebellion against God. And it also has a deep-rooted history into the occult. We read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 7, that the soothsayer priest, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in. So a soothsayer is a person who tells the future through the use of astrology. A sorcerer practiced black magic, enchantment, witchcraft, and divination with the assistance of evil spirits. They also claimed to have command over evil spirits so they could summon them at any time they wanted. A diviner communicated with the gods for the purpose of determining their knowledge for clarification of a decision or discernment of the future. And the Chaldean was a magician schooled in black magic. And just a side note, black magic as it's called is the use of spells, incantations, which were used to summon Satan and his demons. So you can clearly see that there were some really evil practices going on in and around this area. They were opening windows to a realm that should never be opened. And so what's the connection? Well, somewhere after the Medes and Persians captured or conquered Babylon, somewhere around 480 BC, the Babylonian priests were booted out of Babylon. And they settled in Pergamos which is modern-day Turkey. The place that Jesus said was where? The throne of Satan was, right? And that tells us that that practice that they practiced of summoning Satan and his demons worked because this became the throne of Satan. And so we learn from Revelation chapter 2 that it was in Pergamum that they erected a an altar rather to their god Zeus. That altar, if you remember when we were in Revelation 2, was built on a thousand-foot hill that overlooked the city of Pergamum. It was built as an entire structure with colonnades that jutted out from it, stairs that led up to the bronze altar. I mean, this was a big deal at that time. And so it was on that bronze altar, the one dedicated to their god Zeus, that they would have sacrifices. And they would pray and worship who they believed was their lord and savior, Zeus. And until recently, archaeologists did not believe that they sacrificed human beings on this altar, but they recently found, in excavations, they found human remains there. So now they know that there was actually human sacrifices going on there as well. Now, you're going to see some maps come up on the screen here in a minute. 
And I want you to pay attention to a couple of areas on these maps. The first one you're going to see is a map of ancient Babylon under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to notice that it also includes parts of Turkey and Israel. Okay? Now, the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And so as we pull that map up, you can see that their kingdom now, their empire, includes not only Babylon, but also Turkey, Israel, parts of Egypt, and all the way to the border of India. Then the Medes and Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And you can see by that map that that now includes all of Greece, Turkey, all of Turkey, Israel, Babylon, parts of Egypt, and the border of India. And then we come to the Romans, who conquered the Greeks, and their territory expanded even further out. And the point is that through all of these conquests, Babylon remains at the hearts of these empires. Now we know that Rome was divided because we discussed this, I think, last week about the barbarian tribes who took over Rome. Rome never really collapsed. Rome was just invaded from within. These barbarian tribes take it over and now has become part of Western Europe. But Babylon still remains at the heart of all of this. And, and we can see that clearly on these ancient maps. And listen, that, the God goes by these ancient maps. God goes by the ancient names of these nations. Not the modern maps, not their modern names. He uses these ancient maps as well. And so right in the middle of all of this, the heart of Babylon is Turkey and Israel. Israel, we know, is the focal point of the end days, isn't it? And so Turkey, where the seat of Satan was, Pergamum, so you have both of these factors working in that same area. Now, the connection this has to the Antichrist is that he's going to rise up out of the area of Western Europe, the area where the heart of ancient Babylon once was, or still is, an area that's deep, has deep roots in the occult and dark magic, deep roots in rebellion against God. And so God himself points us to these areas in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and in Revelation 13, which, by the way, is very similar to Daniel chapter 7, God shows us these areas of the world for a reason. And I want you to understand why this is important. It's important because God saw fit to show us these nations multiple times in his word. And if God takes the time to show us something multiple times, I think we should take the time to pay attention to it, no? So God's showing us that in the last days, the focal point will be in this area. And that's why Israel happens to be right in the midst of all that's going to happen, because we know that Israel is going to be the main focal point of the end times. And that's also where the throne of Satan happens to be, Pergamum, Turkey. But as we're going to see in a few minutes, that throne was moved moved to make ready for the coming Antichrist. So let's take a history, at, take a look at history rather through the eyes of God. Now our first history lesson is going to begin with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, a dream of a statue. And the second lesson we're going to get in history is from a vision that Daniel had of four beasts. So God, through the prophet Daniel, interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of a statue. So please turn with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 36 through 43. And i got to apologize to you up front. If you hate history, you're going to get a lot of it this morning. I love this stuff. I know not everybody else does, but I do. And since I have the mic, you're going to have to listen. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 36. This is the dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. 
And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partially of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and the toes of the feet were partially of iron and partially of clay, so the kingdom that shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So, the head of gold is Babylon. And we know that Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. Now, it doesn't say this in this particular piece of the prophecy, but if you look at history, that's exactly what happened. The Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. The Medes and the Persians were then conquered by the Greeks, and the Greeks were then conquered by the Romans. It's all in the history books. The feet and toes mixed with iron and clay represent those barbarian tribes that I talked about, which invaded and took over Rome. Those barbarian tribes eventually formed what we know today as Western Europe, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes. So just as iron does not mix with clay, the union of these nations, to, these unions, these nations rather, are un, unified or un, unionized, but they're not they won't mix well together because of their different cultures, their different backgrounds, because they all, we're looking at Western Europe. None of that mixes over there at this point. And so they will not mix with one another, just as the prophecy says. Now turn with me, flip over to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to look at a couple verses there. Now we're going to see these same nations represented, but in a different form. We're going to see them represented as four beasts. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and set up on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which, was on its, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and extremely strong, and it had, a, had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that they were before it. It had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the previous horns were plucked out before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So these four beasts, Daniel sees coming up out of the sea. And we already know that the sea represents the nations and the people. The first beast is like a lion with wings, and in the, like the wings of an eagle. This beast represents Babylon. Now on the Ishtar gate that was the entrance into Babylon, they had images of lions, but the imagery doesn't stop there. God said through his prophet Jeremiah, describing the kings of, of Babylon and Assyria, that they were like a lion. Israel is a scattered flock. The lions had driven them away. The first one who devoured him, devoured him was the king of Assyria, and the last one who has gnawed his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 17. So God himself describes Babylon as a lion. In the book of Lamentations, we read that God described Babylon as swifter than eagles. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains and they waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. Lamentations 4.19. And so this is clearly a reference to the Babylonians who pursued anyone who tried to escape from them. The first beast is further described as being lifted up from the ground and set on two feet like a man, and a human mind was given to it. 
And so that could very well be a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar, we standing on the rooftop or standing on the wall of, the, of Babylon and he's, he's looking out over the land and he's saying what a great nation this is and what a great nation he created. And so he's taking credit for what God had given him and all of a sudden he winds up in the field with long hair and long nails and he's barking at the moon and he's acting like a wild animal. So this is in reference to that, we believe, And so after some time, God lifts him up out of that condition and restores him to his sanity and to his power. The second beast is a bear. The bear is pictured as rising up on one side, and this represents the Medo-Persian Empire, where the Persians, the side that's lifted up, were more powerful than the Medes. The ribs in his mouth represent their conquest. And the third beast is like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So this beast represents Alexander the Great and the Greeks. The leopard, we all know, is a beast of prey, right? And this leopard has four wings on its back, which speaks of the swiftness in which which the Greeks conquered and consumed their opponents. Now the four heads that this beast has represents the empire of Alexander the Great, which was divided among his four generals upon his death. You following me so far? It's a lot. You need a scorecard. The fourth beast with its iron teeth would be who? Any guesses? Rome. Rome was greater and stronger than all of the empires before it. It has ten horns. Horns in the Bible represent what? Power. So these horns may represent the kings and kingdoms that came out of Rome, which the barbarians invaded, taking over Rome and eventually becoming what? Western Europe. There's going to be a test after this. But notice the little horn that comes up from among the ten horns or the ten nations. That little horn would be the Antichrist, who's going to come to power from among these ancient nations that have now formed Western Europe. Also note that three of the ten nations are plucked out. Now, I want to just throw this out there to you. I can't be dogmatic about this, but I'm going to leave this up to you because this may be a reference to what we're looking at here. There were ten major barbarian tribes that made up Western Europe. Seven of them exist today as actual countries in Western Europe, and three of them were rooted out and never established as a country. First, you had the Anglo-Saxons, which are now England. Then the Visigoths, which are now Spain. The Franks are now France. The Lombards are Italy. The Suevs were Portugal. The Alemanni, Germany. The Burgundians are Switzerland. And the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals were all rooted out and never established as nations. Notice that the beast that comes up from the sea has seven heads and ten horns. Could it be that the seven remaining countries that emerged out of Rome with these extra three horns being the three tribes that never were established as a kingdom? Could that be what we're looking at? I don't know, but it's a very interesting comparison, and we, we have to look at that as part of this connection. Now, there's one other connection I want to make here, and that comes to us in the 70-week prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There's a lot in that little verse. It tells us a lot. The people who destroyed, who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary? Anybody remember? Rome, 70 AD, the Roman general Titus destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. The prince who is to come is to come out of that people. So the prince who is to come is the Antichrist. And that verse in Daniel tells us that he's going to come out from among the Roman people. Rome doesn't exist anymore as a nation, right? But it does exist as Western Europe. Western Europe is the revived Roman Empire. Rome lives through those countries that I just read off to you in Western Europe. And at the heart of all of that, ancient, going back ancient times, is Babylon, Turkey, and Israel. You saw it in the maps. 
And believe me, I racked my brain. I lost hair over this. <laughs> Trying to make this connection. And then it just all, as I started looking at the maps, it just all came to light. Europe is being prepared for the Antichrist. So listen, if evil existed in Babylon, and Babylon, through the conquest of all these countries, all these nations, spread through Media Persia, through the Greeks, through the Roman Empire, right? And Turkey being in the midst of all of that, which is what? The throne of Satan, or was the throne of Satan. The question we have to ask ourselves at this point is that if that evil that existed then has it spread to Western Europe today? You have to think that if this evil is so deep-rooted and it began at the Tower of Babel, spread into Babylon, spread throughout the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, then that evil would still be in existence today, right? You would think. You'd think you'd find that evil in Western Rome. And it does seem like the area that was in the most rebellion against God, an area where there's such evil, Babylon is still alive and well in Western Europe. So I want to begin with the European flag. You see it up there? Notice, count the stars. How many stars you count? Twelve. Oh, somebody was ahead of the game. Or you read the notes. So notice there's 12 stars on the European flag. Now many believe, and so do I, that this flag represents the queen of heaven. This flag is not such a subtle way to pay homage to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, better known as the queen of heaven or Ashtoreth. The queen of heaven or the goddess of Babylon is always depicted with 12 stars around her head. So Europe has adopted the 12 stars of the queen of heaven to represent their union. Now, even the Jewish people stumbled in their worship of this goddess. In Jeremiah 44, 17, we read, But we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her. So we can see that the flag of Europe represents the goddess of Babylon, Ishtar, but you would never hear them promote that. I'm sure that when they brought this flag out and dedicated it, that that was nowhere in the dedication ceremony. But whoever designed this flag had evil intentions. They knew that many would miss. In Berlin, part of Western Europe, there's a Pergamum Museum. In that museum is a replica of the Ishtar Gate from Babylon. And also in that museum is the original altar of Zeus, or the throne of Satan. That happened in 1865 when a German archaeologist painstakingly unearthed every single brick of that altar to Zeus and shipped it to the museum in Berlin, Germany. So once again, in the heart of Babylon, the throne of Satan exists. And it appears that that throne has been moved closer to the place where the Antichrist will originate from, Western Europe. So do you see all the pieces and the places being moved into place for the coming, preparing for the coming of the Antichrist. The rise of evil doesn't stop in Germany. Outside the Colosseum in Rome, to this, to this day, you can see this, is the statue of the god Moloch. Moloch was the god we just talked about not too long ago where they made child sacrifices to. This is sitting outside the Colosseum in Rome. The audience hall in the Vatican a place where you would think they'd shun evil, is designed to look like a serpent's head. Don't ask me why. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But there's the, pic the pictures to prove it. And last but not least, I don't know if any of you saw these images on, on YouTube, but there was a satanic ritual held at the opening of the Gothard Tunnel, which links northern and southern Europe together. It was a ritual so bizarre that those who watched this were confused how this had any, anything to do with this tunnel whatsoever. At one point, there's a goat. You see him in the picture. The goat's a clear reference to Satan. This goat is seen coupling with a woman who's on all fours. 
The woman is then seen with a baby in her arms, which is clearly a reference to the birth of the Antichrist. So yes, Europe still to this day has deep-rooted evil in it. And it's at the heart, at the heart of this evil is ancient Babylon, the Tower of Babel, the throne of Satan, and little tiny Israel sits right in the midst of all of it, the focal point of the end days. So hopefully, hopefully, you understand now the connection between the Antichrist, Western Europe, and where it all began, Babylon. So when will this Antichrist be revealed? Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8. So the Antichrist will not be revealed. He's not anybody, well, very well may be alive and well today on this earth. But he's not anyone that we would know right now. He's not anyone familiar to us right now. But he will not be revealed to the world until the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is removed from this earth. Where does the Holy Spirit live currently? In each one of us. So the, whole, the Antichrist will not be revealed until we are removed from this earth in the rapture. He will also not be revealed until the apostasy happens. No one is to deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. The, the, the apostasy is a defection or a falling away from the truth. Now, you could argue that that's already well underway today, can't you? We're living in a world where Christians actually get angry with other Christians for saying what's in the Bible. Paul wrote, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Second Timothy chapter three verses four, rather verses three through four. We're seeing this today, and if we're seeing the shadow of what's to come now, how close is the real thing? So we see that the Antichrist has its origin somewhere, or will have his origin somewhere in Western Europe. He's probably alive and well, eating a Mediterranean meal right now, somewhere in Western Europe. He's going to rise up from an area steeped in rebellion against God in an area that has deep, deep, deep roots in evil. We know that he's not going to appear until the restraining power of the church is removed from this earth and the great apostasy has occurred. So we don't have to worry about this because we're not going to be here to see it. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will see the Antichrist. You will be under his governance. And so what's he going to be like for those who see him? I'm going to go through some characteristics of the Antichrist. And so if you want to write down the verses, I'll give you the verses. He will rise from his obscurity, a little horn, Daniel 7, verse 8. He will speak boastfully, Daniel 7, verse 8, and Revelation 13, 5. He will blaspheme God, Daniel 7, 25, 11, 36, and Revelation 13, 5. He will persecute the Jews and the Christians for three and a half years, Daniel 7, 25, Revelation 13, 7. He will change the calendar, removing all references to the... Listen, Christmas will no longer be on the calendar when the Antichrist is in power. He's going to remove the Jewish holidays and the holy days, Daniel 7.25. He's going to change the laws, perhaps making it illegal to even speak the name of God in public, Daniel 7.25. He's going to confirm an existing covenant with the Jewish people, Daniel 9.27. This covenant will involve the establishment of a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.15. He's going to put an end to Jewish sacrifice and offerings after three and a half years and will set up an abomination to God in the temple. Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24.15. He will not answer to any earthly authority. He will do as he pleases. Daniel 11.36. 
He will show no regard for the religion of his ancestors, Daniel 11.37. He will have no regard for the desire of women, which means that he will either be asexual, a homosexual, or very possible a transgender. He will claim to be greater than any god, Daniel 11.37, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And he will claim to be God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. His whole focus and attention will be on the military. He's going to conquer lands and distribute them, Daniel 11.39-44. His arrival on the world scene will be accompanied by miracles, signs, and wonders, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. And he will claim that Jesus did not come in the flesh and that Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave. 2 John, verse 7. He will deny that Jesus is even the Messiah, 1 John 2.22. And he will be empowered by the devil himself, Revelation 13.2. But he will not become the Antichrist until Satan possesses him, much like he did Judas. And so listen, the world is being prepared for a one-world order a one-world religion, and a one-world government with a one-world leader, the Antichrist. But it isn't the kingdom of the Antichrist that's going to survive and prosper. Listen to what Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 through 45 says. And in the days of these kings, and we're talking about the end times, the tribulation, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God is made known to the king that will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. It is as good as done. In the days that the Antichrist is ruling, that the kings of the earth are in subjection to him, and as much as evil will seem to have won the day, God is going to win at last. God's will is going to be done. Not the will of the Antichrist, not the will of the people, but the will of God. Jesus is going to return to set up his own rule, crushing and consuming the kingdom of the Antichrist, the kingdom that Satan's been put together for centuries. The kingdom of Jesus will fill the earth and will have no end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, preferably before we leave here today. Listen, if you want to be prepared for the coming of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, if you want to be rapture ready, it's as simple as ABC. Admit, A, admit that you're a sinner, that you fall short of the glory of God. For as written in the Bible, there is none righteous, no, not one, for we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you may believe that you're a good person. You may believe that you've done good things in your life and that that should be enough. Because you're a good person, that should be enough to get you into heaven. But do you really want to put your faith and hope and trust in your, of your eternal destination and your good works? Do you really want to stand before our, the perfect Lamb of God and outline for him how good of a person you've been in this life? Do you really want to do that? Based on the verses I just read, there are none righteous, no, not one, for we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We can never be good enough. We need a Savior. And so the next step is believe in your heart. Believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You know, one faithful night in a jail cell in Philippi, the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas answered him with this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's the answer. It's not works. It's not the law. It's do you believe. It's believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul wrote, For the heart, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You will not regret one day that you've given your life to Jesus Christ. 
So once you admit that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you repent of that sin and turn to Jesus, listen, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a perfect life from that point forward because none of us in this room have been living a perfect life. It just means that that journey to becoming more like Jesus is going to begin. It means that you now have eternal life, that your eternal destination is secure, and that when you leave this earth, you will gaze upon the face of Jesus for all eternity. Do you believe this? And then finally, C, call upon the name of the Lord. Confess that you can't do this on your own. Confess that there's no amount of good works that you could do to work your way into heaven, that you want to submit your life to Jesus and surrender your will to him. And Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will what? You will be saved. It's as simple as ABC. And we go through this every week for those who don't know Jesus. We want to make it as simple as possible for you to know him as Lord and Savior. And so all that's involved at this point is to fall down on your knees, call upon the name of the Lord, repent in your heart, and turn to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. And as the Bible says, as the verses I just read say, you will be saved. Please stand. Lord, I pray that as we went through a lot of history today and a lot of twists and turns, I pray that, that everyone got what you have intended for them to get out of this, Lord, and that people understand the deep, deep rootedness of evil, but no matter how deep that root is, you're going to uproot it one day, Lord, and you are going to rule the day. Satan's kingdom that he's trying to establish here on earth will not last. It will be destroyed. Your kingdom is the only one that will stand forever and ever and ever for all eternity. And Lord Jesus, I pray that everyone in the sound of my voice knows you as Lord and Savior. And those who don't, Lord, would get right with you before this day ever comes. Go before us here today. Go before our nation. Go before the people. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys.